Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Over the years, we've talked an awful lot about the concept of the right to repair, uh, which I'd argue is really a core component of ownership, um, meaning that it's not even just about the right to repair, but really about what ownership itself actually means. Uh, to me, it's such an important subject because questions about ownership have really highlighted uh, a kind of important disconnect about how the world works, starting with the way in which our copyright laws effectively break the concept of traditional ownership, which seems just a little bit ironic in a way, uh, given that the legacy copyright industry spent so many years insisting that copyright made digital goods act more like physical goods. Yet these days, things like copyright and the concept of the Internet of Things are actually doing the reverse, I think, and they're making physical goods act a lot more like digital ones in which you are really left only renting or leasing a product uh, that you thought you bought. Uh, rather than actually owning them. Uh, almost exactly five years ago, I have written down four, but I think it's five years ago, we had Aaron Persinowski uh, and uh, his then co-author Jason Schultz on the podcast to talk about their book, The End of Ownership. Uh, and uh, Persinowski's latest book is called The Right to Repair and sort of in some ways picks up uh, where that one left off, that one being about you know, attacks on ownership and this one being focused on the right to repair. Uh, the book talks about the history of repair and why it matters while highlighting uh, the unfortunate trend of using technology to lock up products and to prevent repair and what that means for a variety of different things um, from that concept of ownership to things around environmental costs to just the nature of consumerism itself. Uh, it's a great book on a very important topic. So Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. It's really great to be here. Uh, so uh, let's start with the, the, the basics. Uh, why, why write an entire book about the right to repair? So, you know, as you mentioned, um, Jason and I wrote The End of Ownership several years ago, and we touched on some of the issues around repair in that book. But in years, I really got the sense that repair sort of deserved um, a fuller treatment than we really had space to give it in that book. And so I decided to, you know, write a standalone book that really delves into a whole range of issues around repair. I mean, I come at this, uh, you know, as a legal academic, as a copyright law expert, but, you know, the right to repair implicates a whole bunch of different bodies of law, uh, but also a whole set of questions around economics and environmental harm and, you know, really sort of the way we uh, structure and think about our role in society. And, you know, to tell that story, I felt like it really required um, the sort of full treatment in a book. And, you know, I, I think 
you know, I like the way the, the book starts out amusingly, by the way. Uh, at the very beginning of the book, you talk about uh, somebody who bought a, a Volvo uh, and who happened to have purchased that Volvo in the hometown that I grew up in, uh, which I, I didn't know. It's just a weird thing where I was like, hey, that's that's where I, I was born and grew up. But <laughs> anyway, I mean, you lay out lots of examples in the book of like, you know, why, um you know, why repairing things is so important, but do you want to just talk a little bit about that concept and why you think the, the, you know, the concept of repairing things, not just the right to, to be able to do that, but the concept of repairing things is so important. Yeah. I mean, repair has been a fundamental part of human culture as long as there has been human culture, right? When we were making hand axes in sort of the prehistoric era, right? There's evidence that people all the way back then, right? Even sort of pre-humans, depending on how you define humans, were engaged in this process of care. And it's always sort of developed hand in hand with our technologies. And it's really not until the last century or so that we've started to see companies uh, develop strategies that, that interfere with our ability to repair. So this is a new phenomenon in a lot of ways, and one that's really ramped up over the last couple of decades. Um, and it is not only sort of a huge historical departure, but it comes at a point in our history where the costs of eliminating repair are, you know, have, have major consequences for us, right? So, um, the modern device economy is pumping out billions of consumer devices a year. And as fast as companies can make them, we're throwing them away. And that's causing just massive amounts of environmental damage, both, both um, at the stage where these devices are being produced their raw materials are being extracted from the ground, factories are churning out iPhones and other products, uh, and then when we discard them, right, and create this electronic waste that has, um, you know, all sorts of heavy metals and other dangerous chemicals in them that are leading to real health consequences for people. Uh, so I think you know, we need to be aware of the, the ways in which our behaviors are being shaped by these policies around repair. Uh, and so the environmental costs, I think, are a really crucial piece of it. But it also has major impacts just on people's kind of day-to-day -day household economics. We spend so much money buying new devices uh, rather than repairing things that, we, uh, that we've repaired historically. And so that puts a lot of economic pressure uh, on individuals and families uh, that I think we ought to be more sensitive to than we are. And there's also the sense in which we're kind of losing a really important set of skills. Um, a lot of people today just don't really understand much about how their technology operates. And the loss of repair, I think, is largely responsible for that. If you live in an era where, you know, you've got to figure out how things work on your own and repair your own car or repair your own household appliances, you have a much more kind of intimate knowledge of how those devices operate. And you're not as sort of dependent on device makers for um, the kind of, you know, ongoing 
upkeep and use of those devices. And, and we've seen, I think, a real loss of kind of, you know, personal autonomy and to some extent kind of personal accountability because we've just sort of ceded the control to the companies that sell us these products. So just uh, uh, not, a, not a pushback necessarily, but but a, a sort of weird dichotomy that I've, I've noticed in, in thinking about this, which is, you know, you brought up the example of like appliances and, and, and things like that. And something that I've noticed within the last like, you know, five to 10 years is that, you know, when I've had appliances or things in my home break, um, I have actually been much more willing to go in and and try and take them apart and fix them in part because there, there's this massive corpus of uh, uh, training material on YouTube where I can go through and line up a dozen different videos of how to fix my particular dishwasher or my particular refrigerator uh, or washing machine or whatever, all of which have broken and all of which I have attempted with, with varying degrees of success to, to fix in the last few years. Um, and so you have this element of it, which is that, you know, I, I think historically, you know, if I go back 20 years when my dishwasher broke, I got a new dishwasher because I would have no clue, not even the first idea of how to fix it. And so you do have this part of the world in which there is a, a sort of, you know, it's generally referred to as like DIY community in which there's so much more information than ever before to fix some things. But then there are other things that are effectively blocked off from fixing. So, so we, we, there's, there's sort of this interesting dichotomy there that, you know, um, that that I think about, but I'm not sure how does how does that fit into your discussion and thesis here. So I, I think you're right. These two trends are sort of evolving in parallel and feeding back on one another to some extent, right? So part of the reason I think you see some companies take these very aggressive anti-repair stances is that they are aware of the ways in which information about repair has really been democratized in the last you know, 10 years or so. You're absolutely right. So many products, you can, you can pull up a video on YouTube that will show you, you know, how to fix some issue uh, with your dishwasher or you know, how to keep your you know, toilet from running after you flush it or something. And companies are I think in some ways threatened by the presence of that information. At the same time, I think you also see the availability of that information increase in response to the restrictions that companies are imposed. So you, you've got companies like iFixit that exist because of these repair restrictions. It's difficult right. to repair your laptop, you know, and so Kyle and the people at iFixit uh, decided to make that information available so that consumers had a fighting chance at repairing uh, those those products. Um, and so that interplay, I think, is is really interesting because some of it is, I think, a sort of reaction to the ways in which companies are trying to control us. And some of us, I think it's a it's a smaller group than I would like to believe. But some of us find that problematic. And so, you know, my first impulse is absolutely, can I fix this myself? And even though I, you know, I figure I'm like a reasonably sophisticated user of technology, um, but oftentimes it's just too 
difficult or too inconvenient or there are too many barriers in the way uh, to allow me to do those repairs myself. The other thing that I think has happened and, and that your, your comment touches on is we used to have a pretty thriving independent repair market where you might not be able to fix your dishwasher yourself, but there was a local repair person who knew how to fix every kitchen appliance from every manufacturer uh, that was out there. They had that, um, they had those skills. And we've really seen that segment of the repair ecosystem um, you know, really kind of dry up over the past 20 or 30 years. So now the options are really try to fix it yourself. Maybe you can. If you can't, then it's authorized repair from the manufacturer or some sort of, you know, third party have contracted with. And the independent repair provider that was really, I think, crucial from a kind of competition perspective uh, has, has really, um, you know, taken a hit in this new environment. I mean, one of the things that I was wondering about in, in sort of thinking through that distinction um, was also sort of the difference between mechanical stuff um, to repair and then computerized stuff to repair. Do you think that there's there's a difference between those things? So I think from a practical perspective, the reason we've seen such a shift in the repair landscape in the last two decades is because of the you know introduction of uh, embedded software code in so many consumer devices um, that I think has given companies uh, you know an incredible degree of power and control that they never really had before. So you know when you take a mechanical component and you replace it with one that is um, that is that is really driven by software code. Um, there's a, a completely avenue by which the manufacturer can regulate and control your behavior. Um, that I think is new and does something really important in this space. Uh, you know, it allows, for example, manufacturers um, to prevent totally legitimate um, original manufacturer parts from working, for example, right? So you go out and you buy a, a new component to replace one on your John Deere tractor, install it correctly, and it doesn't work until John Deere sends a technician out to your farm uh, to, you know, press the button that blesses this component and allows it to function. That's a totally new thing. Um, and, and one that I think is really troubling in this space. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the role that intellectual property laws have played in, in all of this and, and in the, the sort of, you know, attempts to block the right to repair? Yeah, so I think IP is a big piece of the story here. And in, for me, at least, it was kind of my entryway into this set of issues. Um, and a whole bunch of IP regimes play a part and sort of overlapping parts in this story. So from the copyright perspective, you know, you see companies trying to use copyright to control access to repair information, right? 
annuals, schematics, uh, those sorts of things. You also see them using copyright as a mechanism for asserting control over software code itself. So we've had issues with companies using, you know, DRM, for example, to lock down devices and make them more difficult to repair. And that's really a function of, of copyright protection for the, the underlying software code. You see companies making trade secret claims when it comes to repair techniques uh, to um, the, the same sorts of documentation, repair manuals, schematics, et cetera. Um, there's a growing problem with design patents on components of devices, companies, especially automakers claiming design patents on say the headlamp for um, uh, a pickup truck or and, and the bumper. Yeah. Just just to cut in for a second, because I, I you know I've I've noticed more and more people are still confused about design patents uh, as opposed to utility patents and, and their difference. So do you want to just explain, just just to make sure our listeners are, are sort of fully following why design patents are, are used in this way, sort of how they're different. What when we talk about patents, most people think of utility patents, um, but but you want to explain what a design patent is and how it differs. Yeah, sure. The basic distinction here is that a utility patent protects the way uh, a device works, the way it operates, and a design patent protects the way it looks, its, its right. visual appearance. And so design patents are a heck of a lot easier to get than utility patents for a whole bunch of reasons that I go, to, go into in the book. Uh, but the, the basic upshot is if a car maker wants to get a design patent on a particular component of a vehicle, it's trivially uh, easy to, to do that. And so you have companies now that are using those design patents to go after uh, independent uh, part manufacturers who up until this trend emerged were able to say, look, you can go and buy the OEM Ford headlamp for your vehicle, or you can buy one from us, right? We're not the OEM, uh, but it looks the same and it works the same. But now because of design patents, you've eliminated that competition from the marketplace. And we've seen automakers charge increasingly bizarre uh, prices for, uh, for these sorts of products. That's created some some real challenges, uh, both for you know the companies that make these parts, for the body shops that are dealing with collision repairs, and for the people who pay for those repairs, both individual consumers and you know insurance companies uh, that are that are really left to to foot these enormous bills. And part of what we've seen as a result of that, and I talk about this in the book, is. Um, an increase in the percentage of vehicles that are totaled after a collision, right? Because as the prices for parts go up, then it's you know economically uh, less feasible to actually go back and repair them. And that's a really wasteful outcome, right? You've got a car that somebody spent a lot of money on um, that these companies invested a lot in designing and producing. And now, because they've gotten greedy and want to charge you $2,000 for a side view mirror for a Ford Fiesta, your car is going to get totaled, you know, even though the accident might not have been uh, all of that, uh, uh, all of that serious. 
Yeah, I, I mean, so you, you've touched on it a few times already in this discussion, but I, I think it's really important to kind of emphasize, you know, there's a lot of talk lately about competition and innovation, um, you know, in, in a few different contexts. And so there's a lot of like, you know, antitrust conversations. Um, there's There are questions about like better funding for innovation. Um, and I think, you know, part of the point that, that you're making that you make throughout the book is that, you know, this is one area that, you know, would allow for, you know, uh, more competition and more innovation if there is a sort of clear, much more clear recognition of the right to repair. So do you want to just focus in a little bit on that topic? Um, and, and why the right to repair is so important for both competition and, and, and innovation. Yeah, so one piece of this story is like, what do we want companies spending their time focusing on? Do we want them to be making minor modifications uh, to sort of fuel the kind of consumerist um, desire for the latest and greatest uh, device? Or do we want them to actually be investing in genuine improvements and, and actually like new product lines, right? So, you know, every time Apple makes an announcement about the latest iPhone, you know, it's predictable what it's going to say, right? Um, the camera is another megapixel or two better than it used to be. Little bit thinner, and now it comes in two shades of green. Right? Um, how excited should we be about the fact that now not only can you get a purple phone, but you can choose between two shades of green? Right? That is not innovation, um, and we allow companies to use these kind of anti-repair policies to really drive replacement sales of existing devices, I think we're actually kind of suppressing in some ways um, their incentives to genuinely innovate. If I could buy a phone and keep it for as long as I wanted until something actually new and better comes along, then that really lights a fire under these companies to do something truly innovative. And right now, I just don't think we're seeing that in a lot of the, the consumer electronics spaces. And that's not to say there aren't new features that people value, right? You know, 5G phones uh, better than 4G phones. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, what, you know, 10 years, 15 years into the life of the iPhone. And we're still waiting to see, like, well, what's the actually new thing that's going to replace this um, you know, this, uh, this product line. And as long as Apple can sell a couple hundred million of these things a year, <laughs> they're not really all that motivated to do something new. Um, so how, how do you think we, we sort of fix this? How do you think we, we sort of we move the trend back towards um, both, you know, enabling, allowing, and, and encouraging uh, more repair? So, you know, I think that legal intervention is a piece of this puzzle. It's actually several pieces of this puzzle, but, but not the entirety of the puzzle. So I think the first thing we have to do is eliminate some of the barriers to repair that already exist. So we've got to, you know, make changes, for example, to design patent law so that it doesn't interfere with um, third-party uh, parts manufacturers, for example. Um, we've got to make sure 
that copyright law doesn't allow companies to lock down their devices. Um, we've seen some success in the DNCA anti-circumvention rulemaking process on that issue, uh, but I'd like to see permanent legislative changes made there, and there's a bill pending in Congress that would do that. And, and and just just again to sort of clarify for people who are not deep in the weeds, the the the, uh, the rulemaking process, and we've talked about this before, but you know I, I know that a lot of people don't follow this as, as closely as some of us do. There's like this triennial process where every three years people can effectively apply to have certain things exempted from the DMCA's anti-circumvention provisions, which is DMCA 1201, if you want to go deep into the weeds. Uh, and basically the Librarian of Congress sort of picks from the different proposals what uh, is is exempted. Um, and it, you know, that process in the early days was a complete mess. And I think over the last decade or so has gotten much better in terms of the, them actually thinking through the the problems of the anti-circumvention provisions of the DMCA and trying to, you know, create a sort of safety valve. But just that whole process of having to request permission, you know, every three years and kind of go through this process and then waiting to see whether or not you're blessed uh, uh, to, to not face, you know, uh, you know, huge penalties from copyright law it does seem broken and, and a more permanent fix overall and a more structural fix, I think, would be really valuable. So sorry, I, I cut you off on that. But just want to no, no. It's it, it's it's an important point, and you know, one thing that the exemption process doesn't address, and really can't address the way it's designed, is the ability to create and offer to the public tools that would enable circumvention for the purposes of repair. Right. So right now, you know, the copyright office says, yeah, sure, it's perfectly lawful for you to circumvent DRM to repair the optical drive of your PlayStation Five or to repair uh, your John Deere tractor. But it's still illegal to make a software tool and to distribute a software tool that actually lets people do the thing that the Copyright Office tells us is perfectly lawful to do. So if you can't like roll your own circumvention tool, it's sort of a, a right that has no practical application. It doesn't really right. do anybody any good. So I think that's part of the problem uh, as well. Um, the other thing that I think we've seen a lot of over the last few years um, is an effort to impose some obligations on device manufacturers to actually make parts available to consumers and to independent repair shops, to make diagnostic tools available, to make repair manuals available. And so we're seeing state level legislation, um, a set of proposals some of which we've seen implemented in Europe that focus on uh, first increasing um, transparency about the repairability of products. So France uh, has a mandatory labeling system that requires companies uh, to disclose on a scale of one to 10 how easy to repair their devices are. And there's a whole sort of complicated rubric for, um, uh, for determining that score. I think that's a useful piece of information, and there's good empirical evidence that consumers are actually more inclined to buy products that are easier to repair. So I think getting that information out there is really crucial. The other thing that we've seen in Europe that I don't think we're likely to see in the short term in the United States, at least, 
um, is an effort to actually um, intervene in the design process of certain products. So there are these uh, eco-design regulations in for you know home appliances, for example. You have to sell a device that can be disassembled using everyday household tools. You know, a Phillips head screwdriver, not some uh, exotic tool that nobody actually owns, right? You have to be able to disassemble the product without doing permanent damage to it. Um, and, you know, those kinds of rules really empower consumers by limiting the design choices available to companies. Um, I think some people are uncomfortable with government intervention when it comes to the design of products. Right. And I understand that. And there, there are cases where that can go too far. Keep in mind, the reason we have seatbelts today is because the government mandated them. Um, and so if the government tells us that, you know, this hasn't happened yet, but I think it might, if, you know, Europe insists that smartphones have user replaceable batteries, companies will figure out a way to comply. Um, and that would actually save a lot of, um, you know, a lot of money for consumers, eliminate a lot of electronic waste, even if all we were focused on was, you know, how easy it is to, to replace the battery in your phone. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, um, I have a couple different thoughts. On this. It's like uh, there, there was a time uh, the last phone I had that had the, the easily replaceable battery like that had, a you know, the back you could you could pop off the back and just replace the battery um, that had uh, the um, the charging port on that phone had broken. And, and I solved it for many years by just carrying around extra batteries. And I would I never would recharge that phone. I would just, you know, run the battery down until it was done and then pop out that battery and pop in a new one. And I love that. And I actually found that to be really, really handy. I never had to sit and like go plug my phone in and leave it somewhere because I could always just, just flip in a, a new battery. And I was disappointed when that was no longer <laughs> an available thing. Um, but, you know, related to that, though, I do understand that, you know, at least one of the reasons that, that phone manufacturers say that they couldn't do that is because then you know, the demand in the market was always for smaller, slimmer phones. And that becomes harder to do when you have to have like, you know, the ability to just pop off the back uh, and, and pop in a new phone uh, or pop in a new battery, sorry. And so like, I, I understand some of those arguments that when you're, when you put restrictions on how these devices can be designed, it could lead to situations where what the market actually wants is a lot more difficult when you know, when the the device manufacturer can't, you know, build to, to their own specifications. And then related to that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm setting this up for you to, to knock it down if you would like, you know, the, the companies will claim that then there are sort of safety and, and security issues involved in some of these repair issues where, you know, if people don't know what they're doing, they could create problems that lead to, to dangerous or risky outcomes. And so what's what's your response to those to those claims? So I think you're right that there are always these inherent um, trade-offs in the design of consumer products, right? Companies are balancing, you know, how thin is it? What features should it have? What's the price point? The things I think are important considerations. Um, but we know that consumers do value repairability. And so... Um, 
I think it's important to keep in mind that when a company says, well, we can't make this change because the device will be a little bit um, bulkier than it used to be, there's a kind of self-serving logic there, right? And I think it's important to, to keep in mind malleable consumer preferences can be when it comes to these sorts of things, right? It's Steve Jobs himself who said, consumers don't know what you want until you tell them. And so, you know, I think think if there were some um, regulation that required, for example, replaceable, the designers at Apple would figure out a pretty elegant solution to, to make that happen. They've got really talented people there and I think that they could um, that they could manage it. I think in many ways the same thing is true when it comes to these um, around safety and security. Uh, companies say, "Oh, it's too dangerous. You can't replace your own battery or your own screen. You know, it could blow up the you know your your house and you know cause all sorts of mayhem and destruction." And that's been an argument that we've heard for a long time. And so, you know, two responses to that. I think one, keep in mind, right, for well over 100 years, we have had a culture in this country and around the world where people repair their own cars, right, where people are like going to the local auto parts store and getting new brake pads and rotors and installing them themselves to stop their, I don't know, 4,000 pound, 80 mile an hour projectiles. (laughs) And we're all still here, right? We've all survived. Um, There has, there's not been an argument that we need to sort of outlaw um, at home auto repair because it's too dangerous. And so I have a hard time believing you know, that my, um, that my phone or my laptop or my smart speaker are somehow more dangerous than, um, than an automobile. The other thing is we've seen companies that make this argument totally reverse course, right? So Apple a few months ago decides after lots of pressure and sort of looming regulation, Apple decides that it's going to start selling uh, batteries and screens for the most recent iPhone models directly to consumers. Now, if they really believed last year when they told us that it was far too (laughs) dangerous for people to do this themselves, why would they be selling these products to us knowing, right, that they're running the risk of somebody, you know, blowing up their house by, you know, puncturing uh, an, an iPhone battery? It's not to say there aren't risks, but it's also convenient to overstate them. And so I think that's what's gone on in a lot of these instances. The other piece of like a kind of data security perspective, you know, Apple says um, or has said in the past, we can't trust these repairs to people outside of our authorized repair network because think of all the precious data that is on your phone, you know, your financial records and your your photographs of your family and all of your email and work communication. So this has to go to a trusted source. Well, the biggest provider by volume of authorized Apple repair services is Best Buy. And right. go to your local Best Buy. And this is not, to, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, talk bad about the people at Best Buy. But, you know, they've got some like you know, 19-year-old, 20-year-old person behind the counter there 
I don't believe that that is somehow inherently safer than taking it to my local independent repair shop where like the name above the door is probably the name of the owner of the company. And that's the person that I'm going to send my phone to. I don't know who's more accountable in that situation. I, I'm willing to put some faith in, in a local business in those circumstances. Yeah. And, and there certainly have been some controversies over the uh, Best Buy, you know, what is it? Geek services or whatever they call it. Uh, Geek Squad, I think, or something like that. That and yeah. they've had some problems in in, in their repairs. Um, so, are there um, are there areas about all this that you're optimistic about? That where you think things are are potentially moving in the right direction? Yeah, I think the momentum is clearly on the side of right to repair advocates right now. It's an uphill battle in state legislatures, but you know the, the the folks that are involved in this fight on a daily basis. You know, people like Nathan Proctor at, at Perg, and a whole team of people. You know, like the Repair Association, they are driving this issue forward. And I have a lot of confidence that you know someday and someday soon we're going to see a state um, adopt the repair bills on a on a state uh, legislative level. At the federal level, we've seen a lot of interest in the uh, repair issue within the executive branch. So we've had an executive order from President Biden that the right to repair. We've heard him mention this issue on multiple occasions now, which I got to say has been sort of surreal. Um, the Federal Trade Commission has been working on this issue for years now and issued a, a report called Nixing the Fix. Um, that really adopted in large part the arguments of repair advocates. And I expect to see um, some movement there from the FTC, both in terms of you know, more aggressive enforcement of existing rules and hopefully the adoption of some new rules that address repair um, more directly. There's a bunch of bills, I think four right now, pending in Congress that touch on the right to repair. And that's all just domestically with the United States, Europe has really been kind of the policy leader on this front. And you know, if I had to put my money on it, what I bet is the most likely to happen is Europe adopts more aggressive rules first. And you know, that sort of Brussels effect kicks in, the idea that the European market is big enough that the rest of the world is really going to be regulated by the rules that are adopted there. Apple's not going to make an iPhone with a user-replaceable battery for Europe and a different one for sale in the United States. I mean, it's possible, but, you know, given, given Tim Cook's uh, commitment to logistics, I, I find that, like, pretty hard to believe. Um, and so I don't know exactly what form it's going to take or which path it's going to take, but I do think we are going to see some important improvements in this space. One thing though I'm always trying to impress upon people is, you know, this is not a fight that's ever going to be won. There's not going to be a day when we all like pat ourselves on the back and say, <laughs> we did it. We got the right to repair, case closed, let's move on to something else, right? This is always going to be a sort of evolving, moving target because companies 
with new strategies. New companies are going to emerge. New product categories are going to uh, hit the market. And so, you know, it's always going to be this sort of back and forth between, you know, law, regulation, uh, and advocacy on the one hand, and, you know, the interests of device makers on the other. So, you know, we've got to be prepared for this to be kind of an ongoing struggle and conversation. Yeah. I mean, the the, the one thing that I'll note that I, I, I've been sort of optimistic about is, um, you know, like new entrants on the market that are sort of embracing the, the right to repair. Um, and, you know, like I, I recently uh, picked up a, a framework laptop, which... I, I've, I've, I can't recall seeing a new product that's been so sort of widely embraced by so many people in part because it's a laptop that, that very proactively advertises the fact that, that it wants you to repair and upgrade and, and change and even, you know, potentially build your own uh, laptop. You can buy it as a DIY kit and it, it shows up every order that, that, you know, if you buy a laptop from them, it shows up with the one and only tool that you will ever need to to take it apart and, and change it or upgrade it. Um, and so just the fact that you have things like that, um, I, I've been over the last few weeks, I've gone really deep into the bizarre and and still I, I can't quite wrap my head around it world of the mechanical keyboard uh, aficionados. <laughs> and also in that space, there's, there's a huge support for kind of this idea of building your own and repairing your own and changing your own. Um, and so there are these sort of spots in the market where there is this kind of like, um, you know, market-based outward excitement for the right to repair and companies that have stepped in to fill that demand, which I think is, is a really cool development. And I'd like to see it extend further, but uh, I've been really kind of happy to see that. Um, but, you know, I don't know if, if you've seen other things along those lines as well. Yeah, you're right. I, I do think that the, the sort of market response is a really important piece of the puzzle here. You know, again, I'm a lawyer, uh, a legal academic. I think about things um, at least as, you know, sort of first approximation as legal problems. Um, right. But that's only, as I said, a piece of the, the story here. So we've got to look to kind of market-based solutions. Uh, Framework is a great example. Uh, Fairphone, uh, who, you know, sells a, uh, a, a kind of right to friendly smartphone um, has had a, a fair degree of success, you know, especially for a company that released its first product, you know, four or five years ago now. That's, that's promising. We've seen some legacy companies move in this direction. So Dell uh, announced a, a, a laptop that is very kind of repair friendly and modular. Uh, so I think there are promising signs there as well. Um, the one bit of caution, I guess, I would add to that, um, you know, kind of hopeful message, which I do agree is hopeful, is the framework laptop and the Fairphone are designed for people um, who have a fair degree of like confidence in their ability to interact sure. with technology. They're marketing towards people who know what the right to repair is and care about it. And I'm, I'm right. really glad to see that. But you know, there's a huge swath of consumers who are never going to repair something themselves. But what I care about is the idea that they ought to have options in the marketplace right. 
for repair services. They shouldn't just have to go you know, to Samsung to get their phone fixed. They should be able to have you know, a whole bunch of options available to them. And those options are available right now, but um, there are a lot of you know, really important limitations and restrictions and headaches that independent, independent repair providers uh, have to uh, navigate this marketplace. And so that's the other piece of the market that I want to see really develop and flourish is, you know, the, the independent repair services space for the people who either don't have time or don't have the kind of mechanical inclination to go out and buy a device that they're excited to fix for themselves, right? Like, I haven't bought one of these devices yet, but I would imagine like you get a framework laptop and part of it is like, I can't wait till this thing breaks, <laughs> right? Cause like now I get to fix it, right? Isn't that going to be fun, right? That's a, that's a different relationship with, uh, with your technology, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm hoping mine breaks. I, I am looking forward to like, there, there's different, you know, modules and, and things. So like the, the upgradability is, is part of what, what I'm excited about, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I get that. Um, anyway. Um, so uh, just to close it out, I mean, uh, you know, uh, just to remind people, I guess the, the, the new book is called the right to repair. Uh, very easy to find. Uh, it's called the the subtitle "Reclaiming the Things We Own," uh, and obviously, is if you've listened to this conversation, you know it's kind of a really interesting subject, and and the book goes really deep on it, um, and uh, it's just just a great book. So thanks for for writing it. Thanks for all the work you do on this issue, uh, and thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Absolutely, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap.